Vampires are a pillar of modern pop culture. From Edward Cullen to Dracula, they're depicted as bloodthirsty, nocturnal immortals, sometimes with the power of transfiguration, an allergy to garlic, and in desperate need of sunblock. But you don't hear a lot of real-life claims of folks actually encountering them anywhere but on screen or in the pages of a book. That's because they're entirely mythical. Or so we thought. Are the lights on? Good. Welcome to Listen with the Lights On. I'm Jessica Blaustein Marshall. And I'm Patrick Garrett. I am Dracula. So what's your experience with vampires? To me, vampires were always just that hokey, mythical creature that lurked, you know, in a big mansion on a hilltop and Van Helsing coming up the hill to try and murder him. (laughs) I will find your earth box and drive that stake through your heart. Yeah, they were very, like lived forever, they sucked your blood, they hated garlic, and if you held up a a cross or crucifix, they would be afraid, and then they would turn to ash in the sunlight, right? I'm flesh and blood, but not human. I haven't been human for 200 years. We talked to folklorist and author Michael Bell. He told us that vampires are real. Bell's the author of Food for the Dead, a look at the New England vampire panic. He looks at cases of suspected vampirism in 19th century Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, New York, and beyond. And he's still on the hunt for more vampires, but not the type of fanged menaces of Transylvania that we thought. So you are heading up to West Glens Falls Mm -hmm. to investigate a case there. Can you tell me a little bit about what you know of that one so far? This one happened in 1858. And it it appeared in a lot of newspapers. I think it first appeared probably in the West Glens Falls Republican. I'm guessing in late March of 1858. And most of them published it under the the headline, Barbarous Superstition. And I'll I'll read it a little. That's a hook. I would read an article about that. (laughs) A dead body disinterred and the heart taken out to cure a man of consumption. Two exclamation points. <laughs> really hits home there. <laughs> a libel and a disgrace upon the intelligence of this community was perpetrated last week at the small settlement of Goodspeedsville. Some mile or two from this village, it appears that a man by the name of Adams, living in Goodspeedsville, died about 17 months ago, leaving a, li- a wife to mourn his loss. The widow removed to the west and remained there a short time since when she returned to this town. Upon her return, she found her deceased husband's brother dying with consumption and declared he could be cured only in the following manner, which she said the practice where she was living had uh, came from. The body of her husband should be taken up, the heart dissected, and if any blood was found in the heart, it should be burned and the sick man would recover. This monstrous proposition was immediately acted upon, the dead body disinterred, and a physician called, who took out the heart and lungs, but not enough blood was found to answer the purpose, the body having been lain too long. The further prosecution of this infamous project was abandoned. How did you start studying vampires? When I first went to Rhode Island, I started doing a a project that was funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities, looking at the southern county, Washington County, called South County. And one of my interns said, you've got to talk to this guy who was at the end of Sodom Trail. 
down in Exeter. And I said, okay. When she said, be sure to ask him about his family's vampire. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know, That's not good. <laughs> well, I'd been a folklorist for quite a while by that time, and I'd never heard any authentic vampire stories or, you know, encountered any vampires. So it really did get my attention. And, and he told me the story of Mercy Brown, who it turns out was the last person exhumed as a vampire, you know, in New England, which was 1892. Now, what does it mean to be exhumed as a vampire? What exactly does that entail? pretty graphically is when people in uh, in a family are dying of consumption that's what they called pulmonary tuberculosis sometimes when the doctors would say hey it's in the hands of God there's nothing more we can do they didn't understand it was caused by a germ they just knew that one person after another was getting sick and dying and wasting away so the the folk remedy that had been passed around for a long time was you go out to the cemetery, exhume the bodies of your dead relatives who had died from this disease, check their hearts or other vital organs to see which ones had fresh blood in them, liquid. They were looking for liquid blood, which they interpreted as fresh. And you would cut the heart out, burn it to ashes. And sometimes, as in the case of Mercy Brown, in 1892, you might feed the ashes to someone in the family who was sick, and that was supposed to take care of the problem. Where did this come uh, from? Probably Eastern Europe. As you know, most people who settled in New England were from Britain, especially from the southeastern part or southwestern part of England. Mm -hmm. And if you go and look for the vampire practice there, you're going to be disappointed because it wasn't part of their folklore. How would this come to New England from Eastern Europe. What really got me started understanding how it came here was the very first case that I found, the earliest, which is from 1784 in Willington, Connecticut, where a, a man who was a town official in Willington wrote a letter to the newspaper complaining about a foreign quack doctor in town who was claiming that he could cure everything, including consumption. And he had actually talked a man in town, another town official, into exhuming the bodies of the dead children, looking for a vine that was supposed to be growing from the corpse. If the vine was found growing and thriving, then they were supposed to cut the vine and cut out the vital organs and burn it all to ashes, which would take care of the problem. Now, how does this tie together with what we... And, and maybe it doesn't, like, but we view as a vampire today. I mean, what I'm taught, I'm thinking is like, oh, the Hollywood vampire, mm -hmm. they suck your blood, you yeah, know, they well, live forever, yeah. they're afraid of garlic. Turn into bats. <laughs> you know, directly or indirectly, almost every modern vampire of literature and, and popular culture and mass media owes its identity to Count Dracula, which was a novel published by Bram Stoker in 1897. And his novel was based loosely on vampire folklore. And it's, it's interesting that he, he got his information mainly from a book that was written by the wife of a British cavalry officer who was stationed in, in Transylvania in the mid-1800s. So what, what we have is a real redaction, you know, a watering down of, of an authentic tradition. It's like he put his dipper into a flowing stream of water and came out with this little group of stuff he called vampires, and then he put it in his book. And so, now we have all of them. Now we have, yeah, clones of Dracula. But, you know, folk tradition is very fluid, and it's always changing because it, it travels around by word of mouth or by imitation. 
you know, and different communities have different uh, variants of the same sort of folklore, mm-hmm. whether it's vampires or, you know, how to make bread. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you don't have to dig up any dead bodies to make bread. <laughs> yeah, only if you're making a certain kind. Like <laughs> <laughs> you said that you're tracing over 60 cases of vampirism or vampires in New England, and they're all tied to the exhumation of bodies yes. over the tuberculosis. Yes. Okay. Uh, usually the exhumation. Now, there are some cases that are very interesting where someone who's sick and dying will plead. I found at least two of these. Plead with their parents, please, when I die, cut my heart out and burn it to save my sisters, who's also sick. So that's kind of shortcutting the exhumation. When you touch a dead body that that has died of consumption or or some other mm. kind of horrible like nineteenth century illness, like wouldn't you just catch it? Well, I mean, well, let's put it this way: it, by then it's already too late because you've been living with this family. Oh, you probably contracted in close it already. Quarters. Gotcha. And I know that some people have made a, a big deal out of well, there were more females exhumed than males, so isn't this kind of a you know sexist thing and if you look at the social history of in new england it's understandable because who was outside away from the house where sick people were in the fields working were the men who was inside the bedroom taking care of the sick people it was the women and so of course they're going to get much more exposure to the bacillus than the men so they're going to get sick more often and so they're probably going to be exhumed more often. And the mortality statistics bear that out. Vampirism is always connected to these, you know, horrible things in society, death and disease and, you know, sexual deviancy. What makes us as a people so fascinated and interested in vampires? Vampires in particular, I think, are fascinating because they embody both positive and negative attributes of human nature. They're evil. They kill without distinction, without warning. They just kill. But on the other hand, we have this idea that they're, they're immortal. As you say, they're connected to sexual activity. You know, who wouldn't like to have immortality? Who wouldn't like to be attractive? So you've got that double-edged sword, good and evil combined in one. What makes vampires and bats so closely linked and related? Mm-hmm. Is there a connection? Well, I, again, we can go back to Dracula. Yeah. <laughs> because in the famous scene, you know, he turns into a bat. You're like, thanks, Bram Stoker. <laughs> yeah. And, and, yeah, once again, uh, the folklore is a lot more general than that and a lot more, uh, there's a lot more variation. A vampire could turn into in, almost any kind of insect, for example. Butterflies were common. Hmm. Commonly said, oh, a vampire would turn into a butterfly and come out of the grave. I mean, that was the theory of how they got out of the grave morph into some sort of insect. In the uh, mid-19th century, the world discovered vampire bats. And so there were newspaper articles saying, wow, this exotic, you know, from South America, this this, uh, bat that actually sucks blood and everything. So that came out not long before Stoker was putting together (laughs) the story of Dracula. So I can see that how that would be much more dramatic than, say, a butterfly. Yeah. I want to ask you from a author perspective what it's like actually writing about the vampires like the process of writing it down i'm really walking uh sometimes a very thin line actually i I want people to 
be able to access what I've researched. And so I have to write it so that a generally educated audience will understand and like it and get into it. But I'm also a scholar, Mm. and there are scholarly aspects to this whole vampire uh, complex. I mean, it, it includes, you know, things like marginalization and and othering people. How the newspapers did, you could tell from the one I read about yeah. from West Glens Falls, how the newspapers are really denigrating the folks who did this. Yeah. They're putting them down. They're making them seem like they're superstitious barbarians, you know, heathenist superstitions, barbaric superstitions. There's a whole interesting undercurrent of cultural conflict going on in the vampire episodes, you know, as well as, you know, just the nature of ritual. These are rituals. To me, they were actually healing rituals. I don't think of them so much as like monsters. I think of it as a healing ritual that we only know through narrative. All we have are the stories that people told about these. And so I started the new book with eyewitness accounts by participants, including a congregational minister from Belchertown, Massachusetts, near Springfield. Uh, he actually had the, his mother-in-law and his daughter's body exhumed, and he wrote a letter to a friend who lived in West Stockbridge, uh, Colonel Elijah Williams, about it. And it's, it was written the day after the exhumations. So it's a fresh first-person narrative of the ritual narrated by a guy who was a congregational minister in that town for 50 years. So to me, that's an amazing story. Now, as part of your research, do you also have to watch vampire movies? (laughs) No, I don't, really. (laughs) For your own entertainment? For your own entertainment. Yeah, but, you know, I think my younger daughter put it pretty well. She said, no, you don't want to be tainted by that stuff, I know. Well, you'll just, you'll, you'd probably, now I, I'm going to go back and view it and be like, that's not, that's just, I know, you know. Well, that's, that's one reason I, you know, I don't get into it because I think it would kind of skew how I interpret these things. And I'm trying to look at them, you know, as objectively as I can. Thanks for joining us. Listen with the Lights On is a production of WAMC. Our theme music is Grizzly Reminder by Midnight Syndicate. For more spine-tingling tales, check out our podcast or head over to wamc.org. 